BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. The Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives states its mission as the following, quote, ATF protects the public from crimes involving firearms, explosives, arson, and the diversion of alcohol and tobacco products, regulates lawful commerce in firearms and explosives, and provides worldwide support to law enforcement, public safety, and industry partners, end quote. That's a critically important mission in a country with one of the highest rates of gun deaths in the world. We are just over halfway through this year, and there have already been 22,686 gun-related deaths in the United States. And yet, due to resistance from the gun lobby and from Republican members of Congress, ATF has been hobbled and underfunded. It went without a permanent director for seven years. One ATF employee put it as this, quote, We are asked to do our jobs with both hands tied behind our backs and our feet in leg irons, end quote. Well, last year, ATF finally got a permanent director. Stephen Dettelbach, a former civil rights lawyer and former U.S. attorney in Ohio, was sworn in as ATF director on July 13, 2022. He joins us today to look back on his first year and towards the challenges ahead for ATF. Director Dettelbach, welcome to On Point. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Well, so it's been probably quite an eventful year for you uh, as the first permanent director in seven years for ATF. I wonder um, what you think the impact is on ATF for not having had a permanent director for that long. How has it impacted ATF's ability to fulfill its mission? You know, uh, as the person who's been here now for a year and who's worked as a federal prosecutor with ATF for decades, right, since I started out as a prosecutor in in 1992, uh, here's my impressions, which is, ATF is an agency where there's an incredible group of people doing a lot of very dangerous, important work, uh, literally running towards the gunfire, catching the most violent people and taking them out of uh, the population. And uh, they don't get a lot of recognition. Uh, ATF over my career, I think it's something I said when I got nominated, every uh, every success is anonymous and every uh Accident is existential. It's just not fair. It's not right. And it's, it's not safe for the American people. So part of, I think, my role uh, as director is to make sure people really understand the incredible people, the incredible work that's going on from this group of just over uh, 5,000 uh, people who are working every day to try to protect Americans from violent crime. I don't think people know enough about ATF. And I think part of that is the fact that we haven't had uh, a, a Senate confirmed director in far too long. 
Mm. Okay, well, can I just ask you then to to add a little bit more on what you observed as your experience prior to becoming director when you were, uh, let's say, during your time as U.S. attorney in the Northern District of Ohio? Because as you just heard, um, I, I read that quote from an ATF employee who a couple of years ago said, because of a whole bunch of reasons, not the work that's being done on the ground by the individual inspectors and agents, but by, you know, political for political reasons, that we are asked to do our jobs with both hands tied behind our back and our feet in leg iron. So I'm wondering, when you were U.S. attorney in Ohio, I mean, what did you observe about the, what were the things holding holding ATF back when you were partnering with them on cases? So, so glad to answer that question. Megna, as you know, uh, due to the 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 sort of the world we live in technology, I didn't hear the beginning quote, uh, oh, okay. but, but, okay. I, but I can, but, but I can tell you what I think, uh, which is that, um, you know, the, the, the ATF's mission is actually a tremendously, uh, consensus driven, uh, and non-controversial mission, which is we deal with violent crime. We're the federal agency that's sole mission is to deal with violent crime, working with state and local law enforcement. We probably work closer with state and local uh, tribal police departments, uh, agencies, than anybody else uh, in the federal government all the time. Um, there is also uh, a, a vigorous and important debate that goes on in our country about issues relating to firearms. Um, uh, and I'm not minimizing it. It's an important debate. Um, it relates to public safety, the protection of rights. Um, and, and and sometimes uh, as a result of that debate, people overlook the, the majority of incredible work that's going on at the ATF. And sometimes in striking uh, the appropriate balance between protecting victims and public safety and making sure we also preserve people's rights. Right. There are measures that 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 drag ATF in. It's my job to make sure we stay true to the North Star, which is public safety. It's protecting people from violent crime. And we're available for consultation from members of Congress of either party on technical questions. But the decisions about uh, policy in this country get made by uh, the president and by the members of Congress, uh, not by people at ATF. Mm -hmm. No, point taken. But this is why I'm asking you to translate those policy decisions into what's actually happening on the ground in terms of ATF's uh, ability to do what it wants to do as an agency, what the what the agents and inspectors wish they could do as an agency. So, so let me just ask again, leaning on your experience as a U.S. attorney, I presume that uh, you had frequent opportunity to partner with uh, with ATF agents or supervisors in various cases. Was there ever a time when they came to you and said, we would like to do A, B, and C to help you with this certain case, but we can't because we're underfunded. We don't have enough agents. We're not allowed to even keep, you know, electronic records on firearms. Uh, so look, I mean, any law enforcement uh, executive in the country they're being honest is going to tell you that they could use more resources. Um, and ATF is no exception. Uh, we are lucky. The president has been very aggressive in requesting more ATF resources. And uh, we received uh, some more resources in the last funding cycle. But uh, your question, I think, hits a point, Magna, which is, look, we are a very small agency, uh, 5,000 to 6,000 folks. 
And only 2,500 or so of those are actually, you know, badge carrying, gun carrying ATF agents and another 800 or so inspectors facing a huge problem. Uh, Mm -hmm. Violent crime and specifically firearms crime in this country is a massive public safety threat. Uh, It is pounding on uh, innocent Americans uh, every single day. Uh, I see that. I meet with those people. I meet with police chiefs. I meet with victims of crime. And it is absolutely true to say, look, I mean, we could do more with more. Um, uh, That's not a whine. The men and women of ATF are not whiners. They are doers. They are out there fighting every day. uh, And we're going to keep doing that. Uh, But uh, it, it is accurate that, you know, when you start taking resources away, of a pressing issue like violent crime, uh, you know, you do endanger public safety. It's not as po- it's not as possible to do that. You mentioned, you know, what I did in Cleveland and, and in Maryland and in D.C. and at the Department of Justice, all those places I was a federal prosecutor. I saw ATA step up despite those restraints time after time. You go back to the 90s when we had that horrible spate of uh, arsons that were directed at African-American churches in the United States. Mm-hmm. It was... ATF, that was one of the leading people in the National Church Arson Task Force to deal with that. Uh, you you look at um, the first World Trade Center bombing in 1993, ATF on the scene, finding key pieces of evidence that allowed us to solve that crime and catch people. You look at uh, uh, Oklahoma City with our own offices bombed and in shambles, the national response team, which this week is in Newark, New Jersey, responding to a horrible fire and in Wyoming, Mm -hmm. responding to a horrible fire. They're on the rubble, literally piecing things together. And then, you know, when I'm U.S. attorney doing a horrible gang case in Youngstown, Ohio, where there are people who are just shooting up the town, incredibly violent drug dealers in the town. It's ATF who brings the, the LSP gang case, which I vividly remember. You asked about my time in Ohio. Uh, as one of the best cases. So, yes, we could do more of that, though, even more of that with additional resources. Right. So I I just want to emphasize something. I completely understand that uh, ATF is uh, both sort of a practically and politically beleaguered agency, right? I mean, and it's doing important work on the ground. Absolutely true. So I, I, and I think an a critical function of any agency head is to show publicly their support. They're cheerleading for the for the men and women who are doing the daily tough work, right, of trying to keep this, you know, the citizens of this country safe. So I hear everything you're saying on that point. But at the same time, if we're frank, Director Dettelback, you're also in a political position. You're an appointee of the Biden administration who had to go through kind of a rough um, conf- confirmation process. So f- honestly speaking, are there things that you wish you could say about what ATF needs or what needs to be done to strengthen the agency that you simply for political reasons feel that you cannot? No, I don't think I don't think it's the case that I can't say these things. I just think it's the it's the case that um, you ask yourself, okay, where can my voice add to the equation? And I, the president has spoken out uh, for the administration, and I agree with the president on provisions that that he believes should be enacted into law. Um, and 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 so I'm not shy about that. I don't think that that's a something that, as a member of the administration, I I uh, I, I shouldn't 
support, and I do very, very much. However, uh, the entire conversation uh, can't be about the politics. Somebody has got to also worry about, uh, you know, effectuating, implementing, doing the hard work of of making sure we're enforcing all the, the laws and using all the tools that we have. Right. Right. So so to right. me, it's a question of where does your voice really resound and really make a difference? Okay, well, actually, Director Dettelbeck, as you can hear, we've got a, a break coming up here, but I'm really glad you said that because I want to talk when we come back from the break in more detail about, you know, what ATF needs to do the job that's required of it to fulfill that critical mission that we talked about a little bit earlier. So that's what we'll do when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're joined by Stephen Dettelbeck. He is the director of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. He was uh, confirmed last year, so this has been his first year on the job. After ATF went without a permanent Senate-confirmed director for seven years. Now, uh, Director Dettelbeck, there's something that you said earlier that I want to just explicitly say we are in agreement on. I don't want to get distracted by the politics per se, right? But you had said, what impact do the politics have on the practical ability of ATF to do its job to protect the American people? That's exactly what I'm hoping to hear from you today, because what matters in the end is, are those agents and inspectors able to um, do what they can to help keep America safe from the proliferation of gun violence um, in this country? So, Forgive me for a second. I want to give listeners a little bit of background um, about why the politics does have an impact. Because, for example, um, in the Bureau's appropriation statute, it's two pages long. There's only 11 lines describing the agency's budget, roughly 11 lines. And then there's 76 or more than 70 additional lines with prescriptions on ATF's power, so curbing ATF's power, essentially. And that's, kind, that's a marked success of the gun lobby, I'd say, in, in restricting how effective ATF can be. So one of those prescriptions, which we, proscriptions, I should say, that we talked about on our show last year is, for example, ATF is not allowed, it is not allowed to digitize gun records or install search functions. So your agents have to search through paper records for cases that they're working on. Has that changed at all? Should it be changed? So 
uh, let me describe what happens at ATF when a firearms trace is run, because that's really uh, what you're referring to. Uh, ATF, by statute, is the agency that is uh, given the ability to trace uh, crime guns. So these are firearms that a local law enforcement agency or somebody who's actually investigating a crime, as you say, uh, asks for a trace on. A great example is uh, a year ago on July 4th in Chicago, uh, mm-hmm. where there was that horrible uh, Highland Park massacre, right? And the, they get the gun and they have a serial number on the gun and they ask ATF, we need an urgent trace on this firearm. So what happens after that trace request happened, uh, which really, I think, shines light on your question. So uh, it goes to our tracing center and we run the trace. As you say, there are there are significant restrictions by law. Uh, on our ability to digitize uh, uh, those kind of tracing records. We get, when a, when a business goes, uh, a firearms dealer goes out of business, they're required to send us their out-of-business records, okay? And uh, we get millions a month, millions a month. And they're in boxes and beat up paper. And, you know, there are people who literally sit, their job is to just take the staples out of these millions of things and try to flatten them. Um and then we are we 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 scan them right, but as far as I know, we are the only customer of Adobe Acrobat that actually pays extra money to have search capability taken out of that software, hmm. right? So that we can't search it in certain ways uh, because we're complying with that federal law that you mentioned. So what do we do? Uh, we will. Uh, visually try to do uh, traces. We try to organize things just in files, right? In dates order or something so we can find things quicker. Uh, but for a while, uh, there were so many backed up records uh, that we were, we, we, we bought a bunch of Connex freight cars and they were sitting in our parking lot. And if a trace involved one of those records, people would have to go outside, uh, you know, into the parking lot, into these cars and go through these stacks of boxes. And uh, it, it is, it is, it is not, uh, ideal. Uh, it is not our choice as to those things. And we're going to comply with every one of those uh, appropriations provisions. Obviously, it's the law. Uh, we will and we have complied, um, um, you know, and that's a that's a policy choice that gets made right by by the Congress that we live with. So I hope that that sort of vivid description of what actually is happening, you know, lets you understand, OK, other people set the the rules. Uh, we comply with them all, and here's what it means in in real terms as we try to help that state and local law enforcement agency catch that killer. Right. It it remains asking. It means asking Adobe Acrobat to do actually less than it's programmed or designed to do. I I mean it's it's quite remarkable. The details really do matter, and I appreciate you sharing them with us, uh, Director Dettelbach, because there's some and. And there's some other aspects of how ATF has been, I keep using the word, word hobbled, um, and perhaps that's too generous of a word. Maybe it's, it's had its knees cut out from under it. Because, for example, there's another one, and I want to know if this has changed at all, or if you see a possible change coming in the future. ATF has recommended that it needs more than 850 inspectors, 850 additional inspectors, I should say, to keep up with just basic compliance inspections for gun dealers. They also have right now fewer special agents for a national bureau than the Washington, D.C. 
Metro Police has sworn officers. Is there any hope on the horizon for that understaffing, that critical understaffing problem to be addressed, you think, by Congress? Uh, so, look, at ATF, let me just repeat what I said. I know I'm, I'm going to answer your question, uh, Magna, but our job at ATF is to take what we are given and to squeeze every last bit of public safety out of it. That's what we do, right? Um, and we will continue to do that. So, uh, you know, if Congress says we have to search records, however we have to search them, that's what we're going to do. And we're going to get back to the Highland Park Police Department, to the FBI, to uh, the people in Wisconsin. And, and we are going to absolutely do our job. Uh, now, uh, with respect to the number of people we have, we have uh, uh, asked for in the past and gotten recently some increases, but the numbers speak for themselves. As you said, there are 800 or so industry operations investigators who are out there right now uh, inspecting firearms dealers to ensure that they're complying. By the way, the vast majority of firearms uh, dealers in the United States are law-abiding businesses and they comply with the law. And we have a good relationship with them because we're there to help make sure that they're doing everything they can to prevent guns from uh, getting to the wrong people. Uh, um, but there are some that are not right. And our job is to identify and either correct or take action against those with those 800. We have to inspect, you know, uh, uh, up near just just shy of of 100,000 dealers. Right. So it doesn't happen as frequently as we would like it to. And um, in addition to that, we have to do all the inspections for the explosives industry with those same 800 people. Congress mm -hmm. has said we have to expect every explosives uh, manufacturer and dealer in, in on a three-year cycle. And when somebody applies to be a new firearms dealer, we have to conduct the initial application inspection within a very short time frame. So it's a it's a crushing workload for those folks. And, you know, I wouldn't be telling you the truth if I if I said that we were doing uh, as many inspections every year as we think we should be. We're not. Yeah. Uh, we yeah. try we try you know, we try to focus as best we can on what we think are the most risky um, uh, particular inspections to conduct. But it's it's uh, it's a tough situation. Those are great people. They get they walk into these uh, gun stores alone. They sit there for as long as it takes to make sure that they're looking at the books and records and making sure people are complying with the law. And they they do a very good job of trying to uh, to to enforce it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in 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 certain circumstances, we will you know we'll educate the person who's the dealer and say, hey, you're not doing this the right way. That's a paperwork mistake. This is the way you're supposed to do it. If a dealer is doing something willfully, that is a public safety concern, they risk having their license revoked. And those same inspectors are there to do that. They they will work with dealers who are trying to do the right thing, and they will hold dealers accountable who are not. Yeah. So, you know what, I... I uh, I will concede that maybe it's a little unfair for me to ask you, what will Congress do? OK, I, I, I'll, t I'll take that. I'll take that one on the chin. I understand. So let me rephrase a little bit here. Um, you know, here's another point that we learned last year when we did our show about uh, the, the, the condition that ATF has found itself in after years of being the subject of lobbying by or the I would say the victim of lobbying by the gun industry. Um, another fact is that ATF's budget has 
barely kept up with inflation over the past 10 years. It is sorely underfunded. Meanwhile, the FBI budget has gone up 62 percent. Customs and Border Patrol get a ni- have received a 92 percent increase in their budget. So instead of me asking you what will Congress do, let me ask you this. You've said several times that, you know, ATF is going to do the maximum that it can with the resource, resources that it has. Are you going or have you gone to members of Congress and said, look, our mission, that mission that I read at the top of the show, which is to protect the public from crimes involving firearms, explosives, arsons, and alcohol and tobacco products, that with the resources you have given us, ATF cannot completely or fully um, satisfy that mission? Well, I think that that's kind of self-evident, right? I mean, look, there is no way that with the resources we have at ATF that we're going to stop gun crime and violent crime in the United States, right? That is, that is, I think, just a, a fact of life that we all have to deal with. And as far as the message uh, that I have delivered, and I'll, I'll tell you the same thing, it's not my message only. I go around the country. I meet with chiefs of police. I meet with sheriffs. I meet with uh, mayors, city council people, community activists. And I do that all over in different places from Kentucky to uh, Arizona to to, to, to New York to uh, North Dakota, Fargo, North Dakota a couple of weeks ago to Florida to Georgia, you name it, different places. People have a lot of different views in this country. I'll tell you something I hear everywhere I go, from every chief, from every sheriff, from every mayor, every single one. Please send us more ATF resources in my area, more agents, more analysts. We need more inspectors. Please send us more resources here because we're doing incredible work with you, but we can't do enough of it to keep up with the violent crime threat. Uh, So that's not just my message. That is a message from law enforcement. I mean, people Mm. talk about the need to you can't get public safety on the cheap. Right. You can't do that. Law enforcement needs support. Law enforcement needs funds. This is a a situation where we have gun crime out there that is very, very dangerous, that is threatening innocent people all over the country. And we need to fund the law enforcement agencies that are designed to combat that problem. And mm. ATF, ATF is one of those agencies on the federal level, a key one. Yeah. And it's the only one that hasn't received uh, uh, an equivalent increase in its budget from from Congress as at the well, FBI and 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 Border Patrol has. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. I don't like to compare myself to the other agencies. Uh, uh, I like to compare myself to the threat. Right. The threat we are facing is growing. Uh, The danger is growing. And so and it has been for some time. And so the notion that you would the danger would be growing and that uh, over all those years, I'm not talking about last year or any particular, but of all those years that you're not spending to keep up with that threat just doesn't make sense. Right. Uh, But I will say, you know, uh, the president asked for a significant budget increase to ATF. And we had a, a uh, you know, a group of people who supported that in Congress and we received extra funding. We're grateful for that. But to say that, you know, we, we're, we're done and that's enough, I think, is just not is, is not fair to the American people. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever had a conversation like the one I'm about to hypothesize, but um, have you ever had a chance to 
go to, uh, let's say, a member of Congress that's uh, been uh, constantly voting for the, these restrictions on ATF's ability to do its job. And have you ever you know, thought about saying, look, that shooting that happened in your district you know, on X date, we could have traced that gun almost instantaneously, except you've made it impossible because we have to dig through, you know, tractor trailers of paper to find any information about the gun. So help us improve this situation. Yeah, you know, look, I, I that's really, we keep our enforcement role, uh, you know, try to keep it, I think it's important to keep it totally out of any of the political fray. So individual cases we don't discuss uh, as they're going on with Congress. Uh, we try to tout our, our successes. Uh, but I'll just be honest with you, I, I think that the temperature of the country in talking about gun violence is very, very high, very high. Uh, and, um, I think we are at a point where we need to try to sit down and, you know, we can have very passionate views about this, but get to solutions, uh, that actually, you know, uh, improve public safety. And we have a bunch of those solutions out there. Uh, do we have every solution out there? No, but we have a bunch of those solutions out there now. And I don't know that, that, you know, individually trying to blame people for what's going on now is the best way forward to get to a consensus. Um, that doesn't, that's just my view. Uh, I, I get that people are, are, are very passionate about facts, uh, as you're sort of pointing out. But to me, you know, if we talk about something like uh, crime gun intelligence, which is a topic I talk about all the time that we haven't mentioned, crime gun intelligence, which is a real game changer in trying to combat uh, uh, violent crime that hasn't uh, uh, drawn, uh, you know, the kind of controversy that other things have. Um, you know, I try to focus with members of Congress on those things when I talk to them, because I think we can find common ground and move things forward. Talking about the NIBIN system, the National Integrated Ballistic Information Network, it's geeky stuff, but it's really important because it helps cops catch shooters, trigger pullers before they shoot again talking about, you know, what we need to actually trace firearms, talking about the touch DNA work that ATF lab people have developed over the last six years, which has brought the hit rate up from just in the single digits, two, three, four percent to 50 percent. Uh, think about that. A cartridge case is, is shot out the back of a firearm in a murder. And we can now use touch DNA to catch uh, the killer in a way we never could before. Uh, you know, we just and, and working on bipartisan solutions. We I, I recently opened uh, did the ribbon cutting on a new national correlation center in Wichita, Kansas, with with Senator Moran uh, from Kansas. And that's going to be a game changing violent crime center for detectives from New York to mm. to Florida, everywhere. So, I mean, there are things when I talk to people, when I have a chance to talk to people in this job, I try to talk about things we can work on to improve the lives of Americans. That's what the president asked me to do. And that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. You know, I, I hear you when you say that uh, going to people and pointing your finger at them and blaming them isn't going to work. Uh, but at the same time, the American people are seeing they're connecting the dots right between the decisions made by members of Congress 
And as you're talking about what's happening on the ground with ATF, so let's call it accountability uh, rather than blame. Like I would say that, uh, for example, Congressman Jim Jordan knows exactly what he's doing when he accuses you of uh, turning lawful owning um, lawful gun owners who want uh, an arm stabilizing brace. He, he accused you of turning them into uh, criminals, and that's just not true. We'll we'll be back. This is on point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Stephen Dedelbeck joins us today. He is the director of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. This is his first year on the job as a permanent director. He was sworn in a year ago, July. Um, so, Director Dedelbeck, let's switch gears a little bit and talk more about things that are actually happening on the ground and what you'd like to see continue or uh, evolve or change. Because just before uh, you took office... As you well know, the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act passed. It's the first federal firearms legislation in 30 years, and it has some pretty interesting aspects to it. So first of all, two new federal charges added, uh, making um, straw purchasing a federal crime and a new federal firearms trafficking uh, as, a, as a crime. Um, so tell me a little bit about how you see things playing out on the ground as the uh, the act has had a year to take effect? Uh, so uh, lots of things in the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act um, to talk about, uh, some of which don't have as much to do with ATF. Uh, tremendous mm-hmm. amount of funding to try and deal with both mental health issues, to try and help states uh, to implement things like uh, red flag laws, uh, all sorts of really uh, important things. But the ones that ATF spends the most time on are the two you mentioned, which is Congress created two new federal statutes that for the first time create standalone crimes for firearms trafficking and straw purchasing, which are both ways that guns get from legal commerce into illegal commerce, which is a key part of any strategy, any strategy to reduce 
uh, gun crime in the United States has to try to prevent the the diversion of firearms from lawful commerce uh, to unlawful commerce. And those are two key ways it happens. We have been out there working with the U.S. attorneys uh, and police across the country. We have brought uh, over uh, uh, cases against over, uh, I think, 100 defendants now just on those new laws. I think it's probably more. It gets more all the time because people are really uh, uh, aggressively trying to, to use those laws that Congress gave us. And there are things that range from, you know, a case in in Florida back in March where we got uh, 90 firearms that were being trafficked to a drug cartel member in Mexico um, and charged the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act there to to a case in New Jersey uh, involving a Latin Kings gang where uh, they were trafficking in guns, including ghost guns illegally. And we were able to charge the Bipartisan Safer Community Act statute. Uh, in that case, to to as I said, scores and scores more. So we also are out there educating our local law enforcement partners, our federal law enforcement partners, our state law enforcement partners on parts of that act, so that people know what to investigate, how to do those cases. I was recently down in South Carolina. I met with all the criminal chiefs from all the U.S. attorneys' offices around the country uh, to talk about what we could do to to make sure that we're implementing that law. So that's a daily thing that we do um, at ATF. Um, and it's something that we are very thankful for. Um, like I said, our roles, if we get something, a new uh, ability from Congress, we are going to literally wring every last bit of public safety we can out of it. And that's what we're going to do with the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. Okay. And so um, how much have DOJ prosecutions of people who'd violate these new federal uh, laws, um, how much have they increased? I guess they're new, so maybe well, they haven't increased well, at all. But go right, ahead. It's new, right? No, well, it's a new, it's a new, it's a, it's a new statute. So, um, you know, those yeah. are those are a hundred uh, defendants who would not have been charged the way they were charged uh, unless those statutes had been uh, had been passed by Congress. So it's all it's all new charges uh, trying to deal with this activity. But before there was a lot of cases where prosecutors had to sort of either not do the cases or do what I would call workarounds, right? Charge somebody with a, who was really trafficking in firearms with a paperwork offense. And, you know, um, you know, the ability to actually uh, charge those cases and hopefully get the kinds of sentence we need to deter uh, this kind of crime, I think is something that is, is very important. So I'm very, very thankful for that. Um, you know, uh, and that's our role. Um, can I go back though, to something we talked about in the prior segment for a second? Cause I, I want to make sure ahead. that, yeah, I want to make sure that, that you understand where I'm coming from on this. I, I am not saying that, uh, that people shouldn't be speaking loudly and clearly with all the passion in the world on, on issues of, uh, what's going on in this country and what policies should be passed. And, you know, why we have the situation that we have. Uh, uh, and I'm not saying that people shouldn't have very passionate uh, positions on new laws or old laws. Um, I, I think that's really important, uh, really important work that people are doing. Um, I'm saying that, 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 that what I see my role is as the head of a law enforcement agency uh, is, is not necessarily the same as that role. Uh, so I wouldn't want anybody to think that I'm saying, oh, you know, 
uh, they that you shouldn't be aggressively talking about people. You shouldn't be saying this is the reason this isn't going. That's not at all the case. That's just not my job. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and so um, I, I, I actually live in fear of a world where we somehow kind of come to accept that this level of firearms violence is acceptable in this country or sort of part of who we are as Americans. It is not. It is not part of our American story that, uh, you know, 130 people, people die every single day because of firearms violence. It's not part of what our founders had in mind, that people can't sit out on their porch and feel safe. Uh, nobody thought that we would have one room or two room or three room schoolhouses uh, when they founded this country where duck and cover would be sort of one of the most important subjects. Um, going to movies, going to country music concerts, going to church, uh, feeling safe, walking around on the nice first nice day of spring, uh, uh, whether it's a graduation party, all of these things that we've now seen dragged into uh, gun violence are wholly inconsistent with our American story. And I wouldn't want mm -hmm. anybody to, to have the opinion that that we at ATF think anything different. I and the entire yeah. core of ATF are totally, totally um, uh, committed to making sure people don't accept this. We don't accept it and they shouldn't either. Yeah, you're you're. Your passion for um, not accepting this as the American story comes through loud and clear, Director Dettelbach. I do not doubt that at all, which is why I keep turning back to, you know, over and over again, different ways of looking at this question of can ATF successfully achieve the mission that it has been tasked to do, right? And which as director... I'm going to presume is one of your core responsibilities to um, help your agency, you know, fulfill that. Like, I'll give you another example. Again, we're speaking in con concrete terms. The regulations that ATF um, is able to uh, form for around firearms and accessories to firearms. There's been a couple of relatively recent ones, like a ban on bump stocks. Um, those rapid fire uh, devices that can be added to firearms. They were used in the horrible Las Vegas mass shooting from several years ago where more than right. 500 and, people got shot, right? But right. my, my, point, my point, my, I'm just going to say, my point is, is that ATF has instituted these regulations, but like instantly they get challenged uh, both by members of Congress and in the courts. So does it make it does that make it even more challenging for ATF to even like um, oversee the regulations it wishes to put into place? Uh, so so first of all, let me talk specifically, just mention that you're right. The, the, the ATF has rulemaking authority that Congress gave it. So Congress gave ATF rulemaking authority to implement the terms of several of the major firearm statutes that have been the law in this country for decades and decades and decades, uh, coming up on 100 years for one of them, the National Firearms Act of 1934, the Gun Control Act of 1968. Congress gave ATF rulemaking authority to implement those laws that are already on the books. And so when Congress passes a law in any administration, so whether it's the bump stock rule, which was a, a rule that was passed during the Trump administration after the Las Vegas massacre, or whether it's a law that deals with short-barreled rifles uh, using stabilizing braces to convert items to short-barreled rifles, which have been regulated by the National Firearms Act since 1934, um, whether it's uh, issuing a rule 
that deals with privately made firearms or ghost guns under the Gun Control Act so that people can't get around running background checks as Congress mandated under the Gun Control Act uh, by sort of selling people a gun in a bag um, and being in that business. Um, those are things that that fit with the role of ATF, which is enforcing the laws that Congress has passed. And when when people try to get around those laws, uh, when people try to break them in clever ways that they think are somehow okay, it is the job of ATF to make sure that we're implementing those longtime congressionally passed provisions so that everybody's accountable to them. Um, and so right. uh, people can bring challenges in court. People can express their views about uh, about about them. But it's the law of the land and the courts end up deciding, uh, you know, what happens with respect to those kinds of cases. Um, and uh, ATF litigates those cases, as does the Department of Justice. But the goal of those rules is to enforce the laws that Congress has passed to make sure we're protecting Americans from gun crime. That's the goal. Right. Public safety. Right. Well, so um, as we round down to whew, uh, the last five minutes of, of the program here, Director Dettelbach, um, hope you let me go through just a couple of other uh, quick questions here that I'd love to get your response on. So first of all, um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, a partnership that ATF has with the National um, Shooting Sports Foundation, uh, the NSSF, which is essentially the uh, the industry group for gun makers. A ATF has a program called Don't Lie for the Other Guy, um, and it's a NSF. NSSF partnership uh, that designs educational programs to assist firearms retailers in the detection and possible deterrence of straw purchases. Those are, we mentioned them before, illegal purchases of firearms by one person for another. So it's a partnership between the gun makers and ATF. Now, colleagues of ours just last month interviewed David Chipman, and he was the Biden nominee for the head of ATF who had to be withdrawn uh, before your name was put in because he was uh, he ran up against uh, severe um, obstacles from the gun lobby. And he basically said, he said to our colleagues, these programs just give cover to the NSSF, which has become a much more powerful lobby for the gun industry than the NRA is today. It's an Orwellian world when you have the gun industry presenting themselves as this great partner, while at the same time profiting from gun violence and purposely undermining public safety. What's your response to that? Well, I respect the right of everybody, including uh, Mr. Chipman, to to debate and talk about all these provisions. That was uh, another provision that was in the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act funding that program. So it's a it's a congressional piece of legislation now that that provides funds for that program. Uh, with respect to the program itself, uh, this is a program where uh, ATF works with the National Shooting Sports Foundation uh, to uh, to educate, as you said. Uh, dealers about how to catch and turn in uh, people who are uh, engaging in illegal conduct. And uh, I will tell you that it is it is not an uncommon occurrence at ATF uh, that ATF agents will get a call or a tip from a gun dealer about somebody who is going to uh, break the law and help ATF to catch that person. Um, so, you know, <laughs> the notion that, you know, you shouldn't work with certain people um, 
when you have things in it, that you can do to protect people and make cases, uh, I understand that people have honest disagreement about that. But to me, uh, I said when I got confirmed and I continue to believe I will work with anybody uh, who will help to uh, catch criminals and make Americans safer. And that doesn't mean I agree with people about everything that they do. Uh, mm-hmm. I have very strong views on this, but my job as ATF director is to, if somebody comes to me and says, we will work with you to try to catch bad people. I've been a prosecutor for many years. You work with people to catch bad people and protect Americans. That's yeah. what we will continue to do. Uh, but well, I, I guess the question people- is, let, 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 let me just jump in here. Cause I guess the question is, um, maybe, maybe people ought to be more uh, cautious about who they're willing to get into bed with, let me put it that way. Because, look, the National Shooting Sports Foundation spent twice as much money as the NRA did in lobbying in 2020. They've lobbied against background checks, ma- making background check standards. They've been lobbying against the making the AR-15 minimum ownership age to 21. They're based in Newtown, Connecticut, and actually fought lawsuits brought by the grieving parents of the Sandy Hook murders uh, against gun makers. They lobbied against the very bipartisan Safer Communities Act you just mentioned. They lobbied against you <laughs> and your, your appointment to ATF. And in fact... The um, the relationship between the gun industry and ATF is something so curious that the Giffords Law Center says that ATF is exhibiting the symptoms of an agency captured by the very industry it's supposed to regulate. We, we got about a minute left here. What do you think about that? I meet with people from all different parts of this country. I meet with people from Giffords. I meet with people from Brady. I meet with people from... Uh, every town, I meet with people from the NSSF. I work for the American people. That's what, when you get into government, you're not the same as somebody who is in an advocacy group. I respect all the different people and I don't agree with everybody about everything. And as you said, uh, uh, you know, uh, people I work with may uh, agree with uh, the government, may agree with ATF on some things, may disagree with others. That's our right. But there's not a world where you know, you, you cut people off who want to help you because you disagree with them. As you said, people have uh, unkind things to say about me. Uh, that's their right. Uh, I would appreciate it if they if they didn't talk uh, about the men and women of ATF who are risking their lives to protect them every single day. Uh, they should know that there's a group of 5,000 people out there who are running toward the gunfire to protect them, risking their lives every day. That is the women of ATF, and I'm here to make sure people know what they're really doing. Well, Stephen Dettelbach, he was sworn in just last year, July of 2022, as permanent director of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. Director Dettelbach, I truly appreciate the time you've given us today. Thank you so very much. Thanks for having me. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.